Warning, this episode contains shocking moments and raw or vulnerable content that may not be suitable for all audience members, especially children. Please listen at your own discretion. Thank you, and we hope you enjoy this episode of Inside the Wooniverse. Welcome. You are about to enter the Wooniverse. In five, four, three, two, one. Transport complete. Come inside a mystical, magical portal between worlds. Magic is a catalyst for the betterment of the self and the betterment of the world. Where playful curiosity leads the way and beyond. I just wanted to tell the world the possibility of the human spirit. You won't believe the ahas that come up in every single conversation. But eclipses are amazing and really worth paying attention to. I can't wait to explore this enchanting space with you. The soul that's inside each and every one of us needs us to come back in and sit with it and feel it and hear it and know it. Inside the Wooniverse, a podcast coming to you from the corner of Fringe and May. Hey there, welcome to Inside the Wooniverse, a podcast brought to you from the corner of Fringe and Maine. I'm your host, Colette Baron-Reed. Oh boy, do we have a great guest for you today. Joining us today is Dr. Nita Bouchon. She's a former cosmetic dentist turned three-time international best-selling author and world-renowned emotional health advocate. Nita is the founder of Global Grit Institute, a wellness education platform for optimizing well-being. And she's also the co-founder of Dharma Coaching Institute, a coaching organization training coaches to become the highest versions of themselves. She's also the host of the also most awesome, The Brave Table, a podcast that features unfiltered conversations about unpredictable moments we face on our journey through life. Wow, that is going to be amazing. Anyway, welcome to the Wooniverse, Nita. Oh my gosh, Colette. It's so great to be here. Thank you for having me. So, so excited. Okay. So here's what I love doing because I really, really want to talk about your story because it is really genuinely pretty awesome and interesting. Let's go back to when you were a kid. What was your childhood like? When did you become aware of the soul and its purpose? Oh gosh. Well, you know, growing up to immigrant parents, my dad was from India. He was from New Delhi and born and brought up there, came to and had his American dream story, came to the U.S. in the 70s and met my mother, my mother who was from the Philippines. And so we were mixed culturally, you know, religious beliefs, all of the, all of the things, hodgepodge growing up in Chicago. And there were three of us. So I had two younger brothers and my dad had a very spiritual, upbringing, even though he grew up in part of India where and around the partition time. And so there was a lot of chaos and havoc around religion. And he always kept a spiritual practice. I didn't get it back then. It wasn't cool back then. Um, (laughs) And it definitely was not cool to be holding mala beads around anywhere. So I definitely (laughs) resisted it. Uh, But there is this one Mm -hmm. memory that I have of me going back to India with my aunt at three. And paying homage to all of the spiritual sites. So, you know, went to uh, Rishikesh, went all the way down to the South. And so those memories have been etched ever since I was a little girl. It would be years, decades later when I would go back to my roots to really find that, you know, spiritual essence for myself. But that would, I would say, that was probably the beginning of my walk with spirituality. I was raised with a Catholic mother. And so we did (laughs) go to, we did CCD on Sundays. We also did the Hindu temple on Tuesday nights. It was a Hare Krishna temple. So if you can imagine in Chicago (laughs) growing up and, and, and going to, you know, Hare Krishna temple, they got married at the Hare Krishna temple. And we also grew up going to Gurdwara because that was a very spiritual place for my dad. And so my dad's belief were always around everyone has their own. 
and and you know God lives within mm-hmm. you. And so that's that was very much etched into us at a very young age. My dad would always meditate on Sundays and he would have uh he had his puja and his altar set up before all of that was cool and and in and there was so much respect and reverence and on my mom's side because she was very Filipino. We would go to my grandmother's house for brunch after CCD and church on Sundays. And there would be an altar as well, but you know, it'd be all of our past relatives and offerings. And so we would, we learned that the altars are our sacred place. So that was a little bit about our upbringing. You know, spiritually, there was definitely a lot of this, this love and reverence to kind of the mystic world that I now mm-hmm. have such a deep uh, love for. Isn't it interesting though, too, when you think back on it, like I was also very resistant. I used to get really squirmy. I'll never forget, I was sitting at my father's, the feet of my dad, and he was telling us all these stories about Plato and Aristotle and and, and also spirituality and Slavic spirituality because he was Serbian. And, and I'd be sitting there and watching my gerbil go behind him and, you know, because I'd let the gerbils go and they would wander around. That was like, I, and I was like, like zoning out. But now today, I'm so grateful, right? Are we not grateful today for what our parents offered us, these beautiful traditions? Oh, beyond. My dad. Beyond grateful. I mean, mm-hmm. now I'm, I'm a mom of two. And with my husband, you know, there are certain rituals because he now, he grew up in a very Jain religion. And, and Jainism is kind oh. of the intersection of, you know, Buddhism and, and, and Hinduism. And so their culture is so different. We're more spiritual uh, as a family. Family, sure. But there definitely are rituals that we are now like, what is it that we want to bring in to the fold for our kids who are one in four? But it, it definitely goes back to, okay, we can create our own traditions now. And yes, there's, there is a lot of respect and gratitude for that. Weaving the tapestry together, right? It's like bringing in those beautiful mystical threads. That's amazing. That's amazing. So when did you actually become aware and interested in studying human behavior and the power of emotions? Because you have so many, I guess, layers and dimensions that all come together at where we get to where we're going to get to. But I kind of want to bring in this next thread. You know, what brought you to that? What made you interested in that? Oh, gosh. So at a very young age, I was always the community gatherer. Maybe it's because, you know, growing up in a multicultural household in a melting pot, grew up in the city of Chicago, where I was probably the one that stuck out the most. Um, Most of my classmates were pretty much every color of the rainbow. There weren't very many Asians. There weren't very many, like, I think I was the only... Filipino Indian person in general in my right. class, the people that were either black or you know Spanish, Latino, um, and of course white. So while it was diverse, people didn't know really what I was. I was always ambiguous, and I would always mm. stand out. So this really leaned in for me to be a community gatherer at a very at a very young age. And in fact, I, I grew up early because that then trajectory of my life would lead me to at 10 years old being a caretaker for my mom. And she was diagnosed with breast cancer. And she had a very interesting journey with breast cancer. And that kind of started and stopped. She was in remission, but for six years. And so right into my, you know, high school years, those those lovely primitive years. Right. And I was that caretaker. And so she passed on from that and transitioned when I was 16. And so I was a junior in oh, high school. That's a big deal. And so that would be that first initiation. And you know, during that time when she was, because at 14, that cancer came back and it started spreading everywhere. So for those almost two years, she was actually in and out of the ICU. And so most of my, that teenage time and that early adolescent time, I was in and out of hospital settings. And and that's when I started learning and becoming really, I would not know then, but I needed to know how to make her happy because there were tubes. She was connected to a ventilator certain times because that her cancer had spread to her lungs and things had gotten pretty bad. And so I remember my brothers and I, we would come after our piano lessons because, you know, we're Asian. We had to go through all of those things, but then perform. And we were 
performing for the nursing staff and just to see a smile on her face. And so that's kind of where I started to get a sense of really knowing, wow, okay, this is, this is, I can't explain it because we're living through it, but this is hard time right now. And uh, I was also working a few jobs when I was 16, when towards the end of her time uh, with us. And I remember that first job that I got, I was 15 years old and you'll never guess this, Colette, but it was, I was, I worked for a, a dentist and you'll never guess what his name was. His name was Dr. Horrible. And I'm not making this up. This is a true, very true story. <laughs> I don't know if you want to go see a doctor named Dr. Horble, but, uh, and so, so I remember, and he took a chance on this kid and he had a daughter himself, but he took a chance on me and I would work there Saturday mornings while my mom was sick in the hospital and I would answer phones. But that's when I started knowing, oh, people don't really like coming to the dentist. I didn't really you know, I was a teenager going right. through my own stuff. I didn't really know the funniness or the, the humor of his name at the time. But I knew every single patient that would come through those doors, they were also surprised to see a young kid, a teenager, answering phones. And so that put a smile on their face. I learned very early on that I could then start to alchemize and, and shift the pain that I was feeling or the uncertainty or this dark cloud that I did not know what actually, you know, that looked like until I would then transform them before they would sit, you know, and get their root canal or their crown done by Dr. Horble. And so that would probably be <laughs> the, the starting point because then a year mm. after that, we would go through another really big traumatic event. And my brother, who was 15 months younger than me, it was homecoming day and we were we were set to to meet for after homecoming. And he actually went to the high school that was across the street from me, uh, but he would never make it that day because he had a severe asthma attack. And this was almost a year oh my after my mom died. And he unfortunately <sighs> passed and transitioned on my youngest brother's 12th birthday. Yeah. Oh my God. That is... Unbelievable. That is so painful. Yeah. And, you know, we we definitely know the spiritual energetics uh, now, at least that has given me so much uh, solace in his his transition, but he was he was the closest to my mom. And so for him to transition just a year after my mom, and this was, you know, this is sudden death. This was, he was not very sick. This was before, he wasn't even an athlete. This was before all of those studies were coming out that athletes were having these asthma attacks and their lungs would collapse over their heart and have a heart attack. Um, oh no, I know. I have asthma. So I've, I had to be rushed to the hospital. Like, and they take you right away. They too. take like, you I right away. It. It's like, I so, so you would appreciate I know this, what he went through. Colette. Mm -hmm. They, they could not revive him. They tried three times in the, oh, the, God. you know, the ambulance and he just right away was, you know, transition. And so, wow. yeah, it was a very dark place, very, mm. it was, you know, horrendous, painful, awful, heart-wrenching. Mm. Uh, it took my dad into severe depression and I was a senior in high school and uh, he had been a sophomore. And so for me, senior year meant, okay, I'm applying to all these colleges. You know, this would be my chance to leave, to actually live life for me for once and not be in this thick cloud of grief and sadness and uncertainty and just overwhelm. I mean, I didn't know any of those words back at that time. I just knew it. Right. It's grim and dark and just when are we going to get out of this? And for my dad, it, he was in such severe depression. So for me, I had to, I picked up another job. So I was working three jobs to support our family. And, you know, we leaned on, I call them the matriarchs. There were three women who stepped in fully. My grandmother, my mom's mom, my mom's aunt, my grandmother's sister, my mama Chi, and my bua, my, my dad's sister. And so they were the matriarchs. They were pretty much the wolves who helped raise us. And, you know, as it takes a village and I'm just beyond grateful that every, our entire extended family stepped in. But two years after that, my dad uh, was diagnosed with stage four lung cancer. And so when they gave that diagnosis, I was like, okay, okay, God, do you even exist? All of this faith that we had grown up with, and especially around the time that my brother 
transitioned. We had a whole group of my friends who I was in high school with, you know, the Christian evangelists, they came and, you know, it was such a, and and I remember my dad, even in the hospital settings, a lot of my friends who were in band and we were just corral and literally I call this my soul support posse, you know, your SSP Mm -hmm. and they can look different in different ways. But for me at, you know, 16, 17, 18 years old, we weren't really going out to the clubs. We were really doing those things. They were around, right? right? It was just a different way of, of being. But that shared grief and that shared crisis brought us together in such an impactful way. And that would then lead me to my dad transitioned when I was 19 years old. And I would be an orphan and taking care of my youngest brother at this point. Wow. On um, uh, that, I mean, Wow. Yeah, I, I now I know why you uh, founded the the word global grit, right? And that book that you have, emotional grit, which we'll get to in a second. Okay, so you are 19 years old. You have literally had since the time you were 14, really, or 14 was when she really, really got yeah. sick. Is that right? From yeah. 14 to 16, she died. All your entire adolescence, um, all that. For those formative years were basically stripped away from you. So you didn't have a choice in all of this. And there's so much loss and so much depth. Then what sparked you to move into the career of dentistry from there? Like, how did you, how did you pull yourself up together? Because, because uh, I know it leads us back into your, uh, into the global grit conversation, but you know, there is a piece in between that we should talk about because you just took the world by its horns and just went for it. So tell me about that. Oh, yeah. I I think that I do make fun of tiger parenting because I definitely am a product (laughs) of tiger parenting. But I would say in this case, it definitely left an imprint on me. And, um, Mm -hmm. you know, the way and the season of life that I was in, because at 19, while I was completely devastated, I was lost. Looking back now, I definitely had had very dark thoughts. And the only Mm -hmm. thing that helped me really get out of those thoughts, and and really it's why I wrote, you know, my newest book, That Sucked, Now What? Mm -hmm. Uh, It's an amalgamation of all of the tools that I've kind of really put together from such a dark place in time, but to have the language, the vernacular to actually understand and to Mm -hmm. give people tools to say, all right, that sucked. Now what? Um, That was actually one of the phrases that I would say back then. And, And so to appreciate such a big contrast back then in my growing up to, you know, the life that I've been able to build it had to start there. It was a very dark place. Mm -hmm. And I think the only thing that the mantra that I kept, you know, hearing in my head, this was where I started to kind of think back at my dad's roots. I wanted to keep them alive. I wanted to keep their spirits alive. This is where Mm -hmm. going to temple, going to even church and whatever, whatever that meant, the sanctity of just having that sacred essence and keeping that energy for us, for my brother and I was a very sacred practice for us. Mm. So that was one. And two, I wanted to make them proud. And doctor, dentist, lawyer, engineer sounded like a pretty good stone for that. (laughs) And and meanwhile, I do have to, you know, shout out to Dr. Horrible, wherever you are. (laughs) He was kind of that godfather for me in that way, because I did keep that job for a very long time, every Saturday morning. And that was that discipline, that routine that I had a responsibility to these patients to make them feel Mm -hmm. a certain way to help them transform. I started to really notice that even through my grief and my pain, wow, this person does not want to be here right now, but I can make a funny joke. I can make them laugh and then things are lighter. And so Uh that's where I fell in love with dentistry. And I was really good with my hands because I also play the piano. And that was that time of my life that I was going to pour everything in. My coping mechanism was overworking. My coping mechanism was Mm -hmm. success, achievement, accolades. That was really what brought me through my 20s. There's a chapter that I write about in That Suck Now What on that transition time when my dad 
had passed and I was 19. And all I was craving for myself was just space, freedom, the ability Mm -hmm. to just leave and do me. And I was in the bathroom of my, the college that I went to was Loyola University. It was 15 minutes from my house back in Chicago where I grew up. And I remember seeing, you know, um, a flyer for study abroad program in Rome because Loyola had a Jesuit, you know, we had a school in in Roma, Italy. And I said, I'm going there and I'm going there no matter what I'm going there. And, And literally this was probably a month after my dad died. I just, you know, it was like, you see this and you're like, this right. for you. Yep, you're going. And I had to literally beg my aunt and my grandmother to say, hey, can you take care of, of my youngest brother while I do this thing? And of course, it was all around school. I need to be there for school. It's going to look yeah. good for <laughs> med school, dental school. It's going to look good you know, for that path. Of course, I had to beg because they didn't. They're like, how, how could you do this? What, what You're leaving your family. What is this? But I ended up getting there. And that literally, I didn't know a lick of Italian, didn't know anybody <laughs> there. But that was the first time in my life that I would actually be able to sit in, understand the grief that I had been in. But I could also see, oh, wow, this is what joy actually looks like when I'm not under yeah. that cloud because I had changed my environment. So much so that in this new place, nobody knew who I was. There was no pity. There was no, oh, that's the girl who lost three members of her family in high school. You know, there was none of that. It was, I could recreate an identity if I wanted to and actually choose the things that I could actually share with someone else. Because as a young person, and I I empathize with young people today, we want to belong. Our soul essence Mm -hmm. is we want to belong. We want to be seen. We want to be accepted. We don't want to talk about sometimes the the hard stuff because young people don't have mm-hmm. the, the language for that. The context. And, and there's no context. A lot of them. They don't have the, the experience. Yep. Mm-hmm. You're invincible <laughs> as a teenager, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> and so that particular trip, now I have such a deep reverence for Italy because forever at 20 years old, that fully changed my life. It introduced me to one of the spiritual philosophies because I took an Italian philosophies class while I was there. And that was, we were learning about Marcus Aurelius. We were learning about Stoicism. Right. And that's where I was really, yeah. you know, introduced to the concept of amor fati, love of one's fate. Yeah. Because at this point, I started to yes. meet people from all over the world who either they didn't have relationships with their parents, one parent had left, they had different traumas. So I started to get really this experience of, oh, wow, I maybe I don't have it as bad as I thought, or wow, my depth of my trauma like is relatable. Maybe I can share a little mm-hmm. bit. And that was, again, the hallmarks of being able to let people in and build, build community. So you've then built after that, I know that we can fast forward to a number of years because after you came back from Rome, you actually ended up building a multi-million dollar dentistry practice. Yes. That's true. Yes. Right? And yes, so- I did. I did go off to dental school. Rome did lead me to dental school. Thank you, Rome. And I did. I was, I was actually one of the few women and even folks in my classroom. I didn't have an MBA. Again, it was that overachievement overworking uh-huh. kind of the coping mechanism that I had. I think the other coping mechanism was was some toxic positivity uh, that I can obviously mm-hmm. give reverence to now and talk about the other side of that. We'll get to, to that in a moment. But I did go on to not just become a general dentist because, you know, that wouldn't be enough. Um, I went on to have a cosmetic practice in the western suburbs of Chicago. And honestly, I, I did pour my my heart and soul into that. I also fell in love in dental school. I got married and I had um, mm-hmm. a big fancy wedding. And I would come to probably my big Saturn return and my, right. my big, huge, world-rocking um, fall-on-your-face moment in my independent awakening (laughs) at the end of my 20s. And that would be, you know, literally, figuratively, metaphorically waking up, you know, December 31st, 
and being in such fear and fear of my life and fear of the person that I had married that I would have to leave haphazardly on New Year's Eve in the middle of the night, leave this big home that I created. And I was so ashamed. Mm -hmm. And that, that shame and that guilt, when it's real, it's real. But that would be what I needed to really step foot into my courage. Because for that decade, yes, I went to Rome and had this beautiful Mm -hmm. expanse. But what I really didn't fully sit in is my grief. And I was so busy trying to get out of that darkness. And I did that really well. Yet the universe was like, well, no, we're not done yet. And I had to take matters into my own hands and and really build this courage and the bravery up to say no more, mm-hmm. not this time. Because it is true that if we don't bring, you know, Carl Jung says that famously, that if we don't bring our shadow to the light, it will seemingly come to us as fate. And so although Marcus Aurelius teaches us that we should love our fate, we love our fate by looking at it squarely, right? And then taking responsibility and accountability for being part, you know, for also, you know, why that's there. So it's really common that we could attract partners that would stimulate the abandonment and all of those things and the, la- the, the sense of betrayal and, and a number a number of things because we don't deal with the losses, et cetera. We, we try to run faster than they can catch us, but they always catch us. And I was running so fast. Yeah. And I thought the world mm-hmm. didn't have to know that I was this little girl who just needed to love herself. Mm. And so oh. this this partner really, really would bring up all of the edges, all of that bubbling up to the surface. And so I, that day, December 31st, um, I finally let people in and I said those three words, I need help. I need help to, you know, the, the people that were the closest to me that kind of suspected that I was in an abusive relationship. It was my brother, Mm -hmm. uh, and one of my dearest friends And it was in those moments that my life would not be the same. January 1st, 2012 uh, was when I got a restraining order. And I remember even, I write about this in my latest book, but coming before the judge to even say, this is where I'm at. And even for her to even test me and say, why did you wait so long? And, mm. and, I, and she obviously hasn't been in an abusive relationship. Clearly not. <laughs> so, <laughs> clearly, that was her job. That's not the question. Yeah. Mm-mm. No, 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 no. Yeah. yeah. And, we know the answer to that. And, yeah. and, you know, I think that growing up in a, a family that many cultures, even Filipino Indian cultures, you don't talk about divorce. It's so taboo. And I think being this perfectionist, even in my profession as a cosmetic dentist, you know, you work in millimeters, but but having the upbringing of perfectionism, even in my life. And I talk about even emotional perfectionism. And there were times in my grief, in growing up, I didn't have those tools. It wasn't okay for me to say, I am sad. I'm struggling because I had to be strong. I had to be the resilient one in the face of my dad when he was going through all of his losses that I couldn't really sit in my own suck. Mm-hmm. And, and right. that's really I get it. what started uh, to unfold beautifully, messily, chaotically in those years to come. So I started my 30s embracing that Saturn return and also diving into, for the very, very first time, my own healing. And mind you, I did do, you know, the therapies that, and this was like traditional talk therapy as a teenager. Sure. You know, the teachers had a mandate. They needed to make sure we were safe. But I think also after you go through such a pivotal world rocking upset, oh, I dove in. I dove into all of the ancient practices. And that's really when I started to immerse myself in all different kinds of, you know, meditation and deep somatic work and just allowing myself to feel that rage that I didn't get to feel during those diagnoses, uh, mm-hmm. during the, yep. the deaths of my, especially even my brother, and diving more into even plant medicine and just studying from different gurus and different folks that I 
you know, the angels started to come in and they started to appear yeah. in different ways. And you start to say yes. And one retreat led to another retreat and another retreat led to, it ended up being <laughs> 45 different countries around the world. <laughs> and then saying goodbye to a lot of the things that I had learned, uh, what success was and unlearning mm-hmm. a lot of those things for me to start stepping into that full light for myself for the very first time. So is that what brought you to, like you sold your wildly successful multi-million dollar dentistry practice and decided to transform your career? Was that around that time when you said, I got to give this up? Oh, yes. This was, I would I would begin to formulate my leadership so that when we're at a very rock bottom place, I was asking for help in all the ways in my business yep. because when we have these things happen, it, it affects personal, it affects business. I remember very vividly mm-hmm. for the first time going into my practice that was on the door, even though I had still had imposter syndrome, I had 10 people working under me. I wasn't even 30. You know, Most of the people in the room were older than myself. I barely looked like I was 18. And I was so ashamed and so in so much fear to just say, hey, and and I remember this. I still had my my gown on, my glasses on, my mask on. You know, patients were staying still had suction in their throat, in their mouth, and they're in their chairs. And I got up and I said, I can't do this anymore. I have to speak truth. And so I got on the right. you know inner calm and I said, everyone come to the break room right now. And everyone's like, what, what is, what is so important that everybody needs to come right now? And I just, I just blurted out, I, I need help. I'm going through a divorce. I literally took everything that I could from my house. It's packed in my very nice SUV and I don't, I don't know where to go. And I, oh. I, I don't know if. I'm going to be able to keep this open. And that's how in fear I was. And some people left me that day, but majority said, you can stay on my couch. You can stay as long as you want. I can cover for you. You do whatever you need because I started to let people in because I wasn't stoic anymore because I was finally Mm -hmm. able to lead with vulnerability and authenticity and just the messiness of the full moment that I was in to say, yeah, I need help. And I'm definitely not perfect. (laughs) And here we are. Okay. So imposter syndrome actually has perfectionism at its root and perfectionism has fear at its root and so on and so on, because we just don't think we're ever going to be enough or there isn't enough, et cetera. And that's why we work so hard and we keep running and we keep going. And when you think about it, it really is the statement that we are not broken because we think we're broken. Our, our society tells us that we're broken if we're not constantly producing and moving, et cetera. And I think that that's what you're describing is a beautiful, beautiful way to show us you know, in your story that this is what happens when we let that lead us. And that when we don't let people in, that stoicism, which is I'm fine, I'm going to keep going, I'm going to pull up my bootstraps, I'm just going to keep going. It's so destructive to our spirit, our soul, and our just our basic humanity. And we do need each other. It's what you said. We, and back into that kid that you were saying, we want to belong. We still want to belong. Right? <laughs> Decades later, we still want to belong. Decades yeah. later, you know, and, and good that some of those people left you because they weren't meant for you right? It's like, let the people go that are having the expectation that this, because they all still have to work that out. I love what you're talking about because I think it's so important for so many people who are going to listen to this today that see success as the constant, you know, working so hard and proving yourselves, et cetera. It can really kill you. Oh gosh. And prevent you from dealing with what you really need to be dealing right. with. Because it's going to come and hit you. Or that same thing, trigger, person, circumstance, situation, challenge is going to come up in different ways, you know, it, yeah. whether it's in a business setting or a personal setting or mm-hmm. your own fall as a medical diagnosis or trip or accident. And that's just mm-hmm. the universe screaming at you to say, let's pay attention. And many times it's paying attention to the feelings that we want to suppress. We want to numb. We don't want to lean into the discomfort. We don't want to sit in the suck. And really, I mm-hmm. became really good at sitting in the suck for those five years. And and not that I was stuck in the suck. No, it didn't sound like you're not identified with it. No. And, and that's why the book is not called This Sucks. The book is called That sucks. Right. The book is called That Sucks. Now what? Now what? Because we are 
giving reverence, we are acknowledging what we couldn't control, what happened, what was out of this world, yet now we are actually choosing to move forward. There is that vulnerability piece in the middle to actually say out loud and to acknowledge, okay, that sucked. And so, yeah, which is why, which is why we're, we're here. This is such a profound conversation, but we need to take a little break. More with Dr. Nita when we return. We'll be right back. And we're back with Dr. Nita Bouchon. Now, Dr. Nita, my next question is, when did you go on to found Global Grit? Because really this is, you know, we're, we're moving this whole conversation into this extraordinary foundation that you have. And I want to know how you met your husband. And <laughs> okay. because really you have, you're changing lives. Like you're really changing lives right now. You've written a few books and I want to dive into that next part of your story because yes. I think it's key. Oh, wow. I feel like we're like un- unlocking a movie here, Colette. So That's great. I know, right? <laughs> I'm, so, I'm, I'm in. <laughs> so this next chapter, I call the the full awakening because I did tap into many when I said yes I not only said yes to spiritual endeavors and my spiritual pursuits for all different kinds of healing you know energetics to all different types of therapies EMDR traditional talk therapy all the different modalities and alternative ways of healing and I was able to connect back with my parents and my brother in many different ways and once I started to then know and really trust that, wow, they've always been angels in my life. And even saying yes to creating community, because as I shared, that was one of the through lines for me has always been relationships. Mm-hmm. And I think, of course, it's because of you know my wounds of abandonment, my wounds that I had to really heal on just self-reliance and also self-love but also knowing the breadth and the depth of sometimes our human connection and how you know losses are that part of life but for me to celebrate you know the the slivers of joy in between you know the moments of chaos yeah and it would arrive myself to say yes to different communities. It would allow me to mm. start while I had my leadership then down because I led from a place of vulnerability. It got people mm-hmm. asking, how are you not in your office? Mm-hmm. How are you growing this? And you're not even there. You know, Colleagues wanted to know so that they could be there for their families. I didn't have any children yet. And so I, I didn't know how valuable that was to teach freedom at that particular mm. juncture and stage of my career as a cosmetic dentist. I started a foundation. I started Independent Awakening, which was a nonprofit where we began to champion self-love and confidence in women and girls, mostly coming from you know Asian backgrounds and started this whole movement it led me to the Bay Area. It led me to Stanford, nonprofit management. And I started to learn from, I was the smallest fish in the room, but I started to learn from people as a dentist on what it takes to really create a organization, a nonprofit that, you know, that can be global. And once I started to learn that, once they started to learn that I was also beginning to invest in female-led startups, they were like, wait, what are mm. what is going on? What are you doing? And so it it got me back and forth to the Bay Area quite a bit because then I started to coach and, and not just coach at this point, but fully mentor other startup founders. I didn't consider myself a startup founder uh, at this stage, but a lot of the issues that they were going through in their lives, breakdowns with with founders, uh, breakdowns with themselves, breakdowns with just losses and grief in their life. Mm -hmm. I had been, I kind of knew a thing or two about that. And so that's when it really opened my eyes to the world Mm -hmm. of coaching. It really opened my eyes to, okay, wow, we're, we're on this. I started to get asked to speak around just my story outside of, you know, independent awakening, the nonprofit I had. And I really thought, wow, I could do this at a bigger scale, but I I really am so curious about how do we then move that conversation forward? And 
that led me to, wow, I'm at this intersection, I'm at this crossroads, and I need to say no to a few things in order to say yes to more of these opportunities, which kept leading me back to California. And so I sold my practice and I actually, you know, I think this, this was like a whole manifestation time for me because I would then go to quite a few of these uh, different conferences around the world. And it led me to a place called uh, AFEST. This was about 10 years ago. And at this particular AFEST, I would then meet one of my now really great friends and and his co-founder of this company. It's called Mindvalley. And so uh, a year after that, I would then go to Burning Man, which would fully shift my life with quite a few of the friends that I met at this very global organization. And for the first time, I'm like, wow, people are like me, but they're just living globally. And you know, you're so like-minded. Mm-hmm. And, and I wasn't the one anymore you know, leading the pack in my tiny little town of right. Chicago that I could be led in this way that, and, and it just opened my eyes to the world of growth, development, even coaching. And mm-hmm. so many of the people that I met there knew a thing or two about creating organizations. And and I would then meet my now husband, Ajit, at that particular place. And so I did find love again. But it would not be for another three years for us to get together. We would we would kind of cross each other's paths, and I would then go to Burning Man a year later with our friends from from that particular community, and then a year after that, I would have the courage to sell my practice because I was again around like minded uh-huh. community that was already yep. selling companies mm-hmm. and doing things and letting things go to make room for other opportunities mm-hmm. to grow. And that would then lead me back to Kuala Lumpur to do some leadership coaching and then to speak on this particular stage that my now husband Ajit would also be speaking at in India. And so I had met Ajit three times in three different places in three different parts of the world um, before, right. before we actually said yes to an adventure of love. And, and oh, here we are six years later <laughs> and two kids. That's oh, such a great story. You wrote the book, Emotional Grit, Eight Steps to Master Your Emotions, Transform Your Thoughts and Change the World or Change Your World. What inspired you to write that? I know we can get that on your website. I, that's where I downloaded it. You know, I, I got it from your website and I, I really love how you teach. So Again, with that, you know, why you wrote that, but also what do you think stands in the way of most people when it comes to, you know, following their passion and realizing the life of their dreams? Those two questions are really inter- intertwined. Love oh, you to yes, speak on those two yes. things. Yes. So with emotional grit, the biggest thing that was calling at my heart when I was getting exposed to all of these new different communities and yeah. Just saying yes. And of course, it's that Buddha proverb, when you're ready, the teacher appears, right? And I, I was definitely yep. ready. And I was just committed to saying yes to whatever came in my path. Whereas most of my colleagues who were in medicine, who were in law, who were in dentistry, were only, they had blinders on. It was only talk about medicine, right. dentistry, or, or law, right? And so for myself, being and leading with curiosity, and that's one of the pillars of emotional grit is these characteristics. I was so fascinated by human dynamics that I literally set, and this was a project for myself. I was a researcher in college before I went to dental school. Mm-hmm. And because of my upbringing, I had three of my case studies. It was my, you know, my parents, my brother, and and seeing them Mm -hmm. and their journeys in the hospital setting, seeing how the doctors treated them, the nurses treated them, the nurses treating us. I mean, I we practically lived there for a good portion of my adolescence. And then fast forward to later, even understanding how leaders make decisions. I was very curious at do we have to go through tough things in order to build grit and resilience. And, you know, resiliency is Mm -hmm. obviously now what I talk about in this new book, That Suck Now What? But it started with grit. And I was fascinated with the word grit because yes, it's a masculine word, yet there can be grace. And I've always been told, Nita, you have so much grace for the Mm -hmm. amount of grit that you have. And I'm like, okay, well, I guess I'm I'm the queen of grit and grace. I guess I I can own that. 
<laughs> but I use grit as an acronym. And after, you know, I ended up interviewing close to 500 leaders for this project of mine. And this was around the time when I sold my dental practice. And of course, it led me to all over the world because I then was able to sit with different leaders, community organizers, community builders, because I was so curious about community as well, and how and what they did. Right. And there were about 10 characteristics and I, you know, list them all in the book, but I define GRID as, you know, an acronym to grow, reveal, innovate, and transform. And I've even extrapolated that now into my next book because a lot of what GRID is, is looking back in your past. And and that's where it started because I think what holds people back usually is that uncertainty. Mm-hmm. And is that uncertainty, is the fear of sitting in the discomfort. And I think we see it so much now, especially even with young people we want, you know, we swipe so fast. We get a result so fast. Yeah. We, you know, yeah. have instant gratification that we cannot wait. Yeah. We cannot sit in the stillness. We can't sit in that discomfort of somebody rejecting us or the difficult mm-hmm. conversation that we need to have or the painful conversation or even acknowledgement of somebody else going through a tough time that we ghost somebody or we pretend we're busy or we're just own in our own stuff that we just can't even hold space for somebody else. But these are the fundamental skills that I think are lacking today's world and economy of, of young people kind of entering this space. And it's no wonder we're having a mental health crisis. It's no wonder we're having, mm-hmm. we can't even grapple with these tough emotions. Well, because we weren't really taught mm-hmm. that. I had to you know, and it's it's embracing the duality of both. I think emotional grit laid and. Mm-hmm. a foundation of mm-hmm. really being able to, you know, be the narrator of your new stories because you can. Every day is a new opportunity for that. Grow, reveal, innovate, and transform. Well, now if we fast forward, one thing that I had left out and and not fully formed in emotional grit, which now I have written in my newest book, you know, That Suck Now What? How to Embrace the Joy and Chaos and Find Magic in the Mess is to find magic in your mess. That, yes, it's not just your past and it's not just rewriting the stories of your past, but there is a cyclical moment of that suck. Mm -hmm. If we're not taking that personal responsibility, if we aren't cultivating that muscle of self-awareness to say, oh, wow, I see this pattern here. I have been attracting these emotionally unavailable men. Do I have something to do with that? No. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Or maybe, yes, I do. And, And now it's time that I have to sit with it and deeply sit in that suck to pull out the gems that that next version of myself, that future version of myself has been waiting for. And so that was the gap that I was trying to bridge. But really, Emotional Grit was a research project. It turned into a book, which then literally began my career as a leadership coach. I mean, it started my path on speaking at all of these different places. I ended up at Google. I was like, how do you want me to speak (laughs) here? Okay. It landed me to speak in places like Dubai and different parts of the world where I was actually starting to normalize what it could look like to be somebody that looked like me to talk about something as taboo as divorce. And those conversations led people to be very vulnerable and to actually lead with empathy. And, and they realized that, you know, that was also affecting their bottom line in their company because they were grappling with just the most shameful secret, whether they were hiding something or they didn't want to no longer be marriage or they had cheated or, or whatever, but that was keeping them from mm-hmm. really actualizing too. into their business. Mm-hmm. So I actually think too, that there's a, there is a very little 
distance between us and the business. People think I have a course called The Spirit of Your Business, where it's literally I teach people how to have a relationship with the business. Like you are in this relationship. You can't look at it as an inanimate vehicle that you're somehow separate from. We're actually learning about ourselves and growing and evolving through the vehicle of the business. And it is a living thing. You really actually beautifully illustrate that in your book. Um, also, one of the parts that I thought was really important was when you were talking about the both and, you know, and I think the first book, Emotional Grit, it really is a great book. So it really does give you that sense of the pearl that comes. I mean, really, that's the end. If you look at it in a different way, you can't have a pearl without the grit that would irritate that, you know, inside the mollusk shell, right? There's grit and there's sand in there that, that irritates it, irritates it until there's this beautiful pearl that has great value, right? And then what do you do beyond that? And then you evolve beyond that, like you're saying here, that now there's the magic in the mess because you don't say there is no mess, I've cleaned it up because mess continues, chaos continues. Look at the world we live in. Doesn't look like it's getting less chaotic, does it? No, no not, not right now. No. But yeah, gone are the days and even the decades where we used to lead where business is so separate from personal and, yeah. you know, I think now we can see even in leadership when things are not in alignment, right. things are not integrated. And yeah. even I think when people are introducing certain aspects of themselves that have not been worked through or fully mm -hmm. uh, integrated, you know, I think can be witnessed, it can be noticed. And I think that for it's really to appreciate, and this is what I wanted to bring in for this new book, That Suck Now What? Yes, Emotional Grit gives that beautiful foundation, but I actually go deeper in the reasons why we need to embrace the duality. Because mm -hmm. yes, we can yeah. feel insecure and confident at the same time. Um, if we didn't, we wouldn't be human. <laughs> and, and we can feel reserved in saying yes to a new love relationship but actually even open at the same time because you are curious and we can still live in grief, but find slivers of joy um, when moving through loss. And that's kind of what this, what that suck now, what kind of allows us to bring in tying, in tying the two, but it wouldn't go, it wouldn't come through unless we had that foundation with emotional grit. So across the board, your work brings together the best of spirituality, soul, and strategy. Could you share an example of a time when you helped a client or an organization integrate spirituality and soul into their business? And how do you see the role of spirituality and soul evolving in the business world in the years to come? Because you can't have it without it. I really believe that. I believe like everything that you're teaching is essential. Everybody needs to sign oh, up. Oh, <laughs> absolutely. I think that for anybody who... And this is what I tell my students, clients all the time in whatever capacity that I'm teaching. Just, you know, let's even think back to when we were a little boy or girl and your earliest memory of, of doing something fun and, and so playful. And you can even do this, you know, with your eyes closed if you want or looking down. But, and this is what I lead people to just outside of the coats and the, you know, the, the fancy dresses and, and all of the accoutrements that we may have mm -hmm. in our life. But to put that aside, and my earliest memory was just, I remember dancing and, and that was, I don't know, five or six, but it was after ballet dance. My mom put me in ballet and I was introduced to Hawaiian dancing. In Filipino culture, you're doing a lot of these, you know, Hawaiian dancing. And we were able to just break out and dance. And it was just, it was fun. It was celebrated. It was freeing. It was liberating. And that's, something that's been the through line for me. I've always done coordinated choreographed dance, but what does that look like for you? And that's the biggest, because so often we, we take ourselves, our careers, uh, what we're doing so seriously. And when I get asked to go into a boardroom, you know, many times usually, and this is probably not kosher <laughs> many times, but I'll, I'll just say, everyone stand up, you know, close your eyes. And some of the executives in the room are like, what? I don't trust you yet. What are you doing? Uh, yeah, but to yeah, get yeah. them out of their comfort zone. And I think also to give people permission to access what brought them joy when they were young, what brought them joy before all the accolades, what brought them joy and juiciness and liveliness 
before the stress and the the meetings, the payroll, all of those things. And not that you have to go back to that place where we're forgetting everything, but can you integrate that part integrate of yourself mm-hmm. into your business where maybe instead of dancing, I know when I listen to Hawaiian music and there's, you know, there's a particular song, even for Indian dancing that I have a playlist for that I'll put on <laughs> in between my calls just to get the energy flowing. Mm-hmm. Do you have something that you can connect yourself back to? And some people, most often we can connect to that little giddy child in us again. And that is the magic because if we bring that awe and wonder and fun and playfulness into some of the heaviness that we have to deal with in work, the decisions that we have to make, Mm -hmm. that's the spiritual element that I'm talking about. Let's infuse yeah. more of that. And I pay attention to, you know, I think the our, our inner child work, our little boy and our little girl, because I think for me especially, that was something that I had to bury. And I had to say goodbye to her for decades. And now I make it a point every day to be in touch with her. And now it's it's even easier because now I have my kids. But even for those who uh, have, you know, children who are grown, we can still tap into that, you know, inner childlike joy that makes us come alive because that's really, and I'm sure that's what you talk about too, Colette, is, is the intersection of that business and our spiritual essence because at our core essence, who are we tapping back into? It's kind of like that metaphor. Uh, if you've ever seen in my parents, they had these Russian dolls that- Yeah, little Russian dolls, they, they're nesting the dolls. nesting dolls. They go inside, go. inside. Yes, right. we had and, them too. And when we get to a certain- age, we're we're that largest doll. Mm -hmm. But if we can go back and open back up the tinier dolls that live in that doll to get to that tiniest first doll, that's our core essence. That's that little girl. And didn't Jesus say, be as little children, right? I mean, that always struck me that line, you know, and I, I mean, I'm I'm not a practicing Christian. I'm a, I'm more of a spiritual person. I'm a sort of a smorgasbord person. But, Same, but I, you know, there there's certain things that really never left me, mm-hmm. and that's like so true. So for me, it is that same that playfulness, that joy, that release that is not constricted by conditioning and and rules and regulations. Where is that childlike quality that you can because children see spirit, they just know there is a seamlessness between soul and child, right? There's just this seamlessness, this curiosity, which I think is really our superpower is curiosity. So if you were to give somebody advice who's looking to integrate spirituality and soul into their work or business strategy, for example, like what would just one thing you would tell them? Would you tell them to be playful or or what would you tell them? Absolutely. It starts, it starts by accessing what makes you come alive. And even if you can make a yeah. list of if you, you know, and this is a very quick one, I have several different, many of these exercises. And when you actually order the book, it actually comes with a 44-page free guide that goes through a lot of the self-healing journey and self-healing questions. But one of the first things that that I really love is in our season and, and spirit of playfulness is make a list of all of the things that you would do you know, with reckless abandon, just as a <laughs> playful that. youngin, um, without any care or reverence of what the world thinks. I think so often we have this saying in Hindi, log kya kenge, which means what will people think? And, oh. and, <laughs> and it's so think? huge because it really stops people from mm-hmm. moving forward and taking that risk and taking that step. And so my invitation and my permission slip for everybody who's who's listening is to make that list of one or two or maybe three things that you could even do today that can get you into that playfulness, uh, whether it's a song, whether it. it's dancing, yeah. whether it's uh, singing in the shower, whether it's singing in your car. You can even set a timer for 30 seconds and see how you feel after that. Me, you know, it's so funny. I got this immediate mind of running through a sprinkler. Ah! Oh yeah. <laughs> I mean, I can't do that now. It's like winter here, but I just think about that reckless abandon. Yes. Running to the sprinkler <laughs> on the neighbor's lawn. <laughs> I don't know that I would do that today, but there's that feeling. I know, I know exactly what you're talking about. 
We're going to take a little break now, and when we come back, we're going to switch gears and enter into another dimension of the Wooniverse, the Tea Time After Party. So please stay with us. We'll be right back. Thanks for joining us today, and welcome back. With us today is Dr. Nita Bouchon. Okay, so we are going to switch gears and travel into another dimension of the Wooniverse called the Tea Time After Party. We're going to bring our fabulous executive producer, Connie Deletti here. Are you ready, Nita and Connie? Yes. Ready. <laughs> okay. Woo. Okay, your studying in Rome story got me thinking. Nita, parli italiano. Oh, un poco. Un poco. Un poco. Okay. So I just asked for <laughs> anyone listening, does she speak Italian? I remember most of it. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I, would, I would only say prego. Prego. Grazie, prego. Prego, yes. prego. Oh. Parmigian. Parmigian. Amazing. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> okay, so you have had a, a few professions. If you were to choose another profession <laughs> to be, and you would be wildly successful, what other profession would you choose? Oh, Wow. You know, I was actually just thinking about this. Uh, okay. Recently. <laughs> so, Connie, I don't know. You're definitely yes. in my uh, sphere. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I would say producer. Okay. I think there's Thank elements you. of what we do now that mm-hmm. uh, produce, but, but you Absolutely. know, like film producer, uh, documentary yeah. producer. Um, yeah. I'll hook you up if you ever want well. to move into that. The psychic part of me thinks you might actually yet yeah. do that. So. Yes. <laughs> I think yes. you just I made your own prediction. Absolutely. That's, that's next. Or screenplay. But yeah. This is hysterical. <laughs> All right. How do you feel about clowns? <laughs> oh my God. I added that Connie, one in last night. Connie I was like, me. <laughs> Connie sends me these questions. <laughs> I don't get to read them myself. Oh my goodness. Okay. How do you feel Coming about from clowns? somebody <laughs> who. Uh, like you probably you guys probably remember this it yeah yeah the movie it yes uh yeah no no um the clown was a thing growing up i don't know if you guys so it was a big thing in chicago but bozo the clown and you could go in and 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 be like the guest and win the prizes and so that was a thing growing up not my cup of tea anymore (laughs) Especially after did you, it. Did no. you go to a Bozo? Never, never. Filming? But okay. I mean, I remember the Channel 9, WGN. WGN. I was raised yeah. on Bozo. I lived in Chicago for a few years. So WGN, oh, yes. You and know, Bozo, right? right? Yes. So I want to ask another one. You are banned from the library. Why? What did you do? <laughs> what did you do? <laughs> Probably making out with the guy in the back. Okay. <laughs> in the you know? in, <laughs> in the non-fiction aisle, all the way in the back. More, more like fiction. More like romantic fiction. <laughs> romantic fiction. Oh my god, that's amazing. These are great questions. Oh, oh my goodness. If you could either be a dragon or have a pet dragon, which one would you choose? Ooh. Ooh, I would be, I would be a dragon. Mm. Okay. I would be a dragon. Yes. What kind of dragon? Kind Talk of to dragon. us wearing a beautiful Gosh, velvet jacket. I would, oh, yes. No, <laughs> I, it's reminding me of a movie that I, I saw recently. Was it... I don't know if it was Wakanda. It was, was it Shang-Chi? It was one of those Marvel movies, I swear. But it was because right. I was contemplating whether or not to take my, my, my son to it. <laughs> and when I saw it, I was like, no, these dragons <laughs> are so rings. scary. <laughs> and, but the dragon that I would be, you know, this would go well with the universe because it would be a unicorn dragon and it would have okay. like a... You know, it'd be purple and white <laughs> and like shimmers of gold. And, uh, you know, the, the fire coming out of its breath would be like purple and blue and, and water. Sparkly. Beautiful. Yes, yes. Sparkly. Yeah. Well, that's a very friendly black. dragon. Oh, that's. Yeah. <laughs> you can always show your son how to train your dragon, the movie. Oh, oh, okay. 
That's How to Train Your one. Dragon is like my favorite movie on the whole wide world. Okay, I've seen that like 18 How times. To train your dragon. <laughs> okay, I'm gonna... How to Train Your Dragon. Yes, it's a DreamWorks. It's an animation. I've seen all three of them. <laughs> Literally, I have, I added up. It's disgusting. It's 18 times. <laughs> I can't really? Yes, seen it 18 yes, times, Colette. I'm like, when I am bored, I watch How to Train Your Dragon. When I want to, when I just like, yeah, I just love That's it. Amazing. And I would, I know everybody but me wants to be a dragon. I want toothless. Oh my. I want to have. I'm going to add dragon. a moon to your mix, though, Colette. When you're bored, turn on Turning yeah. Red. Turning Red, such a oh. it's a Pixar movie. I love that. I love that too. Great film. I love yeah. that. Wasn't that the best? Yeah, it was so good. Oh my gosh, she was so cute. Oh my gosh, so, <laughs> so good. good. Connie, last but not least, let's let's give her one more. Okay, one more, one more. If you could have either a rewind button or a pause button on your life, which one would you prefer? Oh, pause. Mm-hmm. Let's sit in that for a second. That's pause? awesome. <laughs> yeah, let's let's just pause. Get a marinade of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah let's button. marinate. Yeah, <laughs> let, it, let it wash over us. Yeah. Yes, that pause. That's a good one. I think I would pause in my first kiss with my husband. Aww. Like just pause sweet. right there. That is yeah. sweet. Seriously. I'm crazy about my husband. 21 years later, I really am. But that Aww. moment that, that so changed sweet. my life, that was an accidental kiss. It was like my my boot got caught in a carpet. I was going in to hug him. It was a blind date. It was our first date. And he thought I was coming in for a kiss. And he like literally swept me off my feet because I was about to fall <laughs> and planted wow. one on me. And I was like, oh, my God, where did you learn how wow. to do that? <laughs> Hollywood moment right there. Yes. And that was the end. For That was the beginning of the end for me. (laughs) Thank you, Nita, for joining us today. I have so enjoyed this conversation with you. And uh, to learn more about Nita and all of her offerings, including her fabulous podcast, you can visit her at nitabushan.com. Also, everything about her book, you're going to check out our show notes. There'll be links and a transcript of the conversation. You just come and visit us by clicking on our link, itwpodcast.com. And we'll give you all the info that you need to get in touch with Nita, see her book and other offerings and see how fantastic she is uh, because you are all going to want to learn lots more about Nita. So what did we learn today? Well, I think we learned about resilience and grit. You know, that grace comes from the grit and the resilience comes from having the courage and the bravery to meet life on life's terms and to move forward in spite of all the challenges that one might have. She was quite an amazing guest. Anyway, thank you for listening. Until next time, I'm Colette Baron-Reed. Be well. Time to share the way we love Become the ones we're dreaming of Inside the Wooniverse is a production of Wooniversal Network Studios A special thanks to our recording engineer, Chris Dupuy Executive producer, Connie Deletti Story editor, Julie Fink and audio post-production by Lonnie Carmichael. Original theme music written and performed by Michael Seifert at Summa Recording. Original music Truth Begins is by Colette Baron-Reed and Eric Ross. And all other music is courtesy of APM Music. Keep up to date on episode releases, giveaways, and special offers by signing up for Colette's newsletter at itwpodcast.com forward slash newsletter. Thank you again for listening, and we hope you join us next time for another episode of Inside the Wooniverse, a podcast brought to you from the corner of Fringe and Maine.